I'm Josh Swartz. And I'm William Millingworth. Host of the High Tech Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with NL Holmes about her sixth book in the Lord Honey Mystery Series. That's right. And it's called Pilot Who Knows the Waters. It's set in ancient Egypt during the reign of the Pharaoh Akhenaten, 1353 to 1336 BC. What an awesome story. Great read. Great talk. Great conversation. You'll want to know so much more. Thanks for listening. And by the way, it'd be so cool if before you go, would you go to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews and, uh, Leave a review for the podcast. Could you do that for me, please? Thanks so much. You're awesome. Enjoy the show. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. Now here's Steve with this week's show. Inel Holmes is a prolific novelist embarking on another significant career phase. Prior to taking up the power of writing and using this pen name, she was an accomplished archaeologist and teacher for 25 years. Early in her career, she served as a nun for two decades. In between, she was an artist and antiques dealer. Yes, she has lived an interesting life, and the sum of her experiences informs and inspires her writings today. Holmes, who earned her doctorate in classical and Near Eastern archaeology studies from Bryn Mawr College, despite an offer to attend Princeton, has excavated in Greece and Israel and taught ancient history and humanities at Stockton University in New Jersey and University of South Florida for many years. She also did archaeological artwork for excavations from Lebanon. With 11 published novels, Holmes is the creator of the Lord Hani Mysteries. The inspiration for her Bronze Age novels came with an assignment she gave to her students one day. Here are are the only documents we have telling us about royal divorce in Ugarit in the 13th century. How much can we say about what happened? She notes it quickly became apparent that almost anything we might come up with was as much fiction as historiography. She also penned the Empire Twilight series, historical fiction set in the 13th century CB during the Hittite Empire. Born and raised in Fort Worth, Texas, she attended the University of Texas in the honors program, but dropped out midway to enter into the antiques business. Two years later, she entered the Discouse Carmelite convent in Texas. She left the convent 20 years later and returned to school to get her BA in classical and Near Eastern archaeology. Holmes resides with her husband, three cats, and a dog. They split their time between Tampa, Florida, and northern France, where she gardens, weaves, and plays the violin. They have an adult son. Today, we are focused on her latest book, Pilot Who Knows the Waters. NL, thanks for joining me on the show again. It's great to have you back. This is cool because this is like, I think this is number four, which is Good thing. It's always a pleasure. I'm happy to be back. Well, it's really cool. Glad to have you back and say hi to everyone. Hello. Well, it's super to have you here. And you have this sixth novel in the Lord Honey series, right? Six, right? That's correct. There's, there are now six. <laughs> yes, that's just cool. And it, it's called Pilot Who Knows the Waters. Congrats on that. And this is awesome. But before we delve into your novel, let's revisit a little about you. You were a nun for two decades, an archaeologist, an antique seller, a writer, and a traveler. Could you talk a little about what in your past helped shape you as an author the most? Well, I, I guess everything you live through uh, shapes you as a person and therefore as an author. So um, certainly the, the convent experience gave me an interest in 
the interior life of people rather than act, external activity. I think uh, I'm I'm not so much into novels that are plot driven or exclusively plot driven, but rather more psychological, uh, relational things of that sort. And otherwise, uh, being an archaeologist certainly has given me grist for the mill here. Uh, my, my books are all historical novels set in the Bronze Age, which is an area that I've, you know, putzed around in uh, after the fact. Uh, and a, a, a love of the Mediterranean, I guess that that would be one lingering effect of being on excavations. Uh, it's a it's a world that I'm I'm really interested in. Very cool. Yeah. You know, and, and I got to say this because, you know, one of the things that, I mean, you got so many cool things going on in your life and in your past life and currently. And one of the things that fascinates me is that you actually participated in dig sites as an archaeologist. Um, can you talk about what that was like? Well, and that, that to me was what set archaeology apart from related disciplines like, you know, history or of philology, ancient languages, and it was the <clears throat> the physicality of it. Uh, you go out and do it. You know, it's not just sitting at your carol in the library all the time. And that, <clears throat> excuse me, that means that you're actually dealing with physical artifacts as well, real uh, physical remnants of people's lives, things that they used every day, and and that attracts me powerfully. Plus, you have a different relationship with the, the colleagues that you excavate with. You're there in a small group for a long period of time under primitive circumstances, working, you know, in the sun and, and playing together, too. You, you get a really different relationship with, you know, your fellows than you would if you just met them at a conference or something. It's uh, it, you form really strong friendships. I can only imagine that'd be cool because you're participating in, uh, you know, digging together and making sure you don't destroy things as well as protect them. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> I mean, there's, there's gotta be a, a kind of a bond that's developed like that. That'd be nice. I, I, I like that. That's awesome. You know, the, the Lord haunting mysteries take place during the reign of ancient Egyptian Pharaoh Akhenaten from 1353 to 1336 BC. Uh, could you share a little about what life in their civilization was like? I mean, it, it, it obviously had laws and, uh, and, uh, and government structure and so forth. Can you just share a little bit about that? Sure. It, it was highly structured. In fact, it was very hierarchical society. The king on top was absolutely powerful. You know, he didn't need to ask anybody's permission to do anything. And he was uh, technically the owner of every resource. Um, he was the the high priest, the chief administrator, the judge, the warlord. I mean, it was a one-man band, except, of course, delegated. But uh, below that were various cadres of uh, the, the government who were the men of power. And it was literacy that gave them that power. It was uh, only about 1% of the population could read and write. And that was the, that was the secret of power, uh, learning. Most people were peasants working the land or craftsmen of one sort or another. And for the most part, they led a pretty decent life. I mean, it's a it's a climate that is not comfortable without air conditioning, admittedly, but but you can uh you can eat well, you know, even without lots of 
monetary resources. So um, there was no slavery. People were sort of indentured servants if they were poor enough to, to need to indebt their, uh, their, their work, their service to somebody. But they could always get out. You know, it wasn't the kind of dead end servitude that the Romans had. Um, their technology was primitive, but they were endlessly inventive. They could do things that we haven't been able to duplicate with all of our modern technology, just using manpower. So there was certainly no unemployment. Uh, everything was done the hard way, just people grunting and shoving. And of course, they had draft animals too, but it was uh, it was a remarkable uh, productive that they they could construct such fabulous things and art was carried to an incredible height uh, all done by hand very aesthetic um, they appreciated beauty and they they appreciated the body they loved to laugh and uh, they loved their families it, it of course, I know this is romanticizing a little, but it sounds like a pretty good time to live if you had to go into the past. Yes, it does. It sounds a lot better than some other times. <laughs> so, yes, <laughs> uh, women had had uh, substantial rights. They they were sometimes even the the village chieftain would be a woman, uh, the head of the local council. So it's you know, especially for a woman, if you want to go back, you better go to Egypt. Nice, nice. <laughs> Well, cool. I, I, you know, uh, um, and, and so with that, so now what I got to ask you is give them kind of a brief overview of who uh, Lord Hani is. Well, Hani is a real historical figure. He uh, shows up in the Amarna letters, which was a, a, um, a correspondence, a, a diplomatic correspondence that was excavated at the site of Akhenaten's capital, in El Amarna. And we know about him a few of his missions, but they were very important missions. They covered the range of reigns from Amenhotep III through his son, through his son. So we know he was active for a good period of time and that he was highly trusted. Um, he, he was sent to carry out very delicate missions. So, you know, here is this man who recurs repeatedly in the records, and I got to thinking about what sort of person it must have been to carry out these these assignments. And that's how I came up with the fictional character of Hani, who's he's authentic as far as we you know we can take that. But but of him as a man, we know only his father's name. So so the rest is open to the novelist to to write what she will. That's cool, because that's uh you know it, he lives on, which is neat because you've uh, found <laughs> yeah, his name I like and to think he's happy. Yeah. <laughs> I would think so. It's like, uh, hey, somebody's talking about me, man, and they're reading about me. I like this, so you know that's 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 good stuff. I well, thank you. And uh, you know, it's uh, you know your latest novel in the Lord Hani mystery series is called Pilot Who Knows the Waters. In the beginning, Lord Hani is summoned by the Queen to set out on a journey. His father insists that uh, he accompany Lord Hani, which I think that's a funny sort of. I, I could see um, my son. <laughs> Um, me not winning, I guess is my <laughs> point. <laughs> um, but uh, his father insists that he accompany Lord Hani. Uh, could you share a little bit about what traveling to another place required? Well, it was a grueling prospect. Uh, I mean, this is something I've, I hope I have conveyed to some extent to readers. 
is how much more slowly life moved in the past. I mean, I personally get frustrated if my airline is delayed an hour, you know, and I have to fly nine hours instead of eight to, to cross the ocean. But in those days, eight or nine hours would only take you a few miles. It was, everyone walked. That's how you, you might have donkey, but they don't move any faster than humans. If you were, you might have a chariot, but that wasn't just for everyday travel. That was almost exclusively military or, or just for prestige. Uh, to go from one country to another, you hoped there was a sea route because that was a lot faster and more, more comfortable than, than trudging overland for many miles, especially through the Near East where it gets really hot. Uh, but sea travel was only good in three seasons of the year. Once the, the rains start in the fall, you can't sail anymore. So that was, uh, that was good while it lasted. Uh, plus, there were dangers, natural dangers, of course, but also uh, brigands and pirates and things like this. You, you never really knew when you set out if you were going to make it back or not. So Honey had a difficult job and one that would have cons- consumed enormous amounts of time away from his family for months at a time. <clears throat> Yeah, that's that's, and you've really gotten into what I was hoping you'd talk about because that's what I I could only imagine what uh, you know, especially when uh, there there there's a conversation that has to do with um, how you know when I, you know saying goodbye or or not saying goodbye because you know oh, we'll we'll see you again when you, know, you just brought up maybe <laughs> yeah. yeah you hope you will right that's something. I think some readers were a little surprised at the first book of this series Bird and a Snare covered years simply to go back and forth and solve what needed solving. But I mean, there's no other way it could have happened to go back and forth like that would have taken weeks every time. So it's just, it's just one more aspect of life in that period. You just got to be patient and have good legs. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Yes. I, I can't, I can't, I can't even imagine just uh, because they knew there's nothing, you know, other than the work animals or the, or possibly chariot or boat or whatever, they really don't know other types of travel. So that's, you know, there's nothing to complain yeah. about. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> no, you, you just, uh, you accept it because that's the way it is, right. which is a virtue. I think we could rediscover. <laughs> I, think I think you're right. I think you're right. I, 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 right along with this, I have to ask you, so how long did they live? What was the typical lifespan those days? Well, the, the average lifespan was about 35 years, which is sad. <laughs> but this is partly because of, of child mortality, which was very high, very high. And a lot of women died in childbirth. Uh, the upper classes, who ate better and had less hazardous jobs, lived longer than the average person, of course. And, you know, we have records, we have mummies of people who lived into their 70s, 80s, even 90s, sort of the ideal, as we talk about our biblical six, what is it, four score and 10 or something, their ideal age was 110. So, you know, presumably some people got up there close to that, or it wouldn't have been a reasonable hope, but, uh, but most people never made that. That's something else. Cause that's, it, I, it got me thinking when I was reading and I was thinking about 
Hani being with his father and stuff like this. And I was like, uh, yeah, I wonder, I wonder how long they did they did live. Um, it's, it's, um, his father was a lucky man. <laughs> <Yes. the hell. laughs> yeah. Nice. I, you know, so, so this is going to lead me. So what inspired you to write Pilot Who Knows the, Wa- the Waters? And could you make sure that you explain what Pilot Who Knows the Waters refers to? Well, it's, it's a quote, as are all the titles in this series. It, it's a quote from an Egyptian uh, piece of literature. It's uh, from a hymn to Amun-Ra. And it's, it reads, Pilot who knows the waters, helmsman of the weak, who gives bread to him who has none, who nourishes the servant of his house. The Lord is my protector, a helper strong of arm, Amun who knows compassion, who hearkens to him who calls. I think a lot of people may be surprised to read a, a, an Egyptian hymn like that because we tend to think of the Egyptians as being sort of formalistic in their religion, uh, just sacrifices, you know, giving them gifts and getting stuff in return. But in fact, at least by this period, it was a very, uh, a very personal interior kind of relationship with their gods. And uh, Hani and his family are pious. And so I think this expressed their relationship uh, with their, their God's household God. Uh, what it means, of course, is that God oversees everything and everything happens in accordance with his will, something that people take and probably identify with. And since this is the conclusion of the Hani series, the idea is that, you know, God has seen them through the hard times and brought them back around uh, brought them back to port as it were. I like that reference. That's, that's cool. And thank you for reading the whole thing in, in, in context. I like that. That's the, and I, and one of the things in, in having interviewed you over time, I've learned that yes, there is a reference <laughs> that the, the title yeah, is from yeah. something. So, <laughs> so thank you. I, you know, uh, all right. So your story, there's political intrigue, treachery, murder, and a civil war. Just a little bit of uh, trouble going on. Um, yeah, and a plague. <laughs> and a plague, yes. C- care to share a little without really revealing too much? Kind of give them a synopsis? Sure. Uh, this this takes place after the death of Akhenaten's immediate successor, who, according to my reconstruction, is his queen, Nefertiti, uh, just before Tutankhamun takes the throne. So it's, it's a moment of sort of interregnum, very very tense. Uh, the old ways are people who support the old ways, the old gods are uh, making a push to come back into power. Uh, the, the reforms that Akhenaten passed are falling away already. They'll be rolled back completely within the next two reigns. So there's a lot of turmoil. And um, <clears throat> one of the things that happens historically and we're not exactly sure when this happens. It's either after or before Tutankhamun, but I think increasingly scholars go for before, uh, which is what I've taken for granted here. One of the queens actually writes to uh, the, the king of the Hittites and asks for one of his sons to marry her and become the king of Egypt, which was an enormously shocking thing. Uh, the, the king of the Hittites couldn't even believe it when he heard this because the Hittites were the enemy or at least the rivals of Egypt. And there was a lot of feeling against them. 
And in fact, in real life, Hani was the man sent to fetch this young prince. So that's kind of the event that centers the plot. He he goes up there to to uh, get a prospective bridegroom for the the queen, but things go south, literally and figuratively. Uh, and I don't think that's a, a spoiler because that's part of history. You can, you can read that in a book. Nice. That's uh, very much so. And it's, uh, it, it does get uh, a lot going on. And uh, at some point, uh, I kind of think that Honey needs to take, uh, maybe needs to take a boat someplace else for a little bit or something. <laughs> yeah, I think a nice vacation on Crete would be good about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very much so. Very cool. Yeah. So do you have a favorite character besides Hani in, in these stories? I mean, if so, which one is it and what do you like about it? Well, I, and I guess everybody likes Neferet because she's sort of a, a spunky girl who speaks her mind and doesn't let herself be ruled by social expectations. But I, as an older person, I also like uh, Thomas, who is, He's a, a complex person. He's not so easy to read. He's a diplomat, of course, so he, you know, he keeps a poker face, doesn't ex- expose his emotions much. He's sort of repressed, in fact. Uh, but throughout the series, I think he's had some pretty juicy things, roles to play. And uh, he has a an interesting addition to his personal arc in this book, too, Um I, I share Hani's respect for him. Let's put it that way. That's excellent. That's cool. So, you know, one of the, one of the things that uh, um, I got to ask, because I know that, uh, and, I, and I told you before we started recording, I said, I was a little worried because the last time I talked with you that uh, I was possibly going to see, you know, like uh, Lord Hani die or something like this. And so I, so <laughs> no. I went to the end first <laughs> And I said, oh, he's still alive. We're good. All right. With little faith. <laughs> and, and so what I got to ask you is, uh, so, you, you know, you've referenced that this is the last of the Lord Hani series. Um, do you have another series in the works? Are you going back to the Hittites? Are you, uh, um, are, are, are maybe zero in on a different character? Well, uh, all of the above. <laughs> nice. I, at present, <clears throat> I'm working on a second novel for <clears throat> Amazon's uh, Vela format, which is serial novels. So I've, I've done one already, and uh, I'm working on a second one. And that's that's part of the Hittite series. Uh, this The one that's out is called uh, the, the Moon That Fell from Heaven, and uh, the second one will be The Players. But I also have in mind a, a sort of a spinoff series of, of Hani, and that would be centered on his daughter, Neferet, uh, Hani's daughter series, which will continue uh, the, the mystery solving without so much of the politics, I suppose. Uh, as seen through Neferet's eyes, she's old enough now to carry her own series, I think. Oh, now that's... But Hani will, Hani will take part of it. Very cool. That's that's awesome. I like that. That's that's neat. That's so that's what you had me thinking about. I was like, well, it's, okay. So if she didn't kill him, then maybe what we got? <laughs> I, he'll be back. <laughs> he'll be back at some form, shape, or another. So ah, cool. Yay! <laughs> and actually, I've got one more historical adventure that belongs before all of these things. And I, at some point, I you know would like to go back and do a prequel or even several prequels. 
Oh, that's excellent. The uh, cool. So the prequel world will be a has the possibility of being alive in in Honey's time. Yeah, <laughs> as long as I'm alive, it has a possibility of being alive. Nice, I like that. The uh, uh, so just as a note, I mean, is have you got other adventures going on at the same time as you're writing? Are you doing? I mean, because I'm talking to you now, you're in France. <laughs> yeah, which, which is well, I'm I'm living here, so the adventures are just sort of daily life things. Uh, um, nothing extraordinary. I'm trying to get my residence papers in order and doing the usual things. Gardening, of course, at this season is a big drain of time. Uh, it's really a, a great climate for roses. So look for me among the flowers. Very nice. Awesome. Well, enjoy that. So, so, uh, and I got to have you, um, talk to everybody about if they wanted to connect further with you, where, where are you going to send them? Well, I would send them to my website, which is www.nlholmes, all one word, dot com. Excellent. And I will have that in the show notes and uh, so they can find that uh, easily. And uh, so I got two more questions to ask you. One of them goes like this. Um, when you get an idea for a story, is there something? And what's cool is that you re- you really have lots of ideas going on, which is which is Neat. I mean, you, you don't slow down. Um, is there something that you do that helps you focus on writing about that idea? Well, since all of my books are centered on one or more real historical events, that's kind of where I start. So, you know, if I know I want to deal with this event or this period, then <clears throat> I start reading everything available about that moment and the, the people who lived in it, the protagonists of the, the events. So, you know, that gives me an easy way to get back into to the track there. Gotcha. That makes sense. The, uh, you know, last question. Do you have a favorite story and author? I mean, if, if so, who is it and what, what do you like that she or he writes about? Oh, wow. I, I guess my all-time favorite is Jeminal by uh, Emile Zola, a wonderful example of 19th century naturalism. That is is so powerful that I I cannot get the images, horrible as they are, out of my head after years. And I think that's a real testament to the the power of the novel, that I was practically traumatized by reading it. Uh, In in the modern realm, I tend to like literary authors, but uh, to pull up a mystery writer that I only recently discovered and am very impressed with, Tana French. Her writing is absolutely beautiful, and and her mysteries are so much more than just whodunits. They're they're really literary. I so admire her. Very cool. Very cool. Thanks for sharing this. Uh, it, and I and I I had to ask because I mean, as a writer, you know, surely you got to have somebody in there that you. So thank you. That's a, oh, too many. That's the problem. <laughs> too many. <laughs> nice. Whoever I'm reading at the moment is my favorite. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> well, NL, thanks so much for joining me again. Pilot Who Knows the Waters is an awesome story. So much for Hani to uncover. I love it. Wishing you the best in all you do. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure to be here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio. Your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. 
Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends. Thank you.